Thanks for listening to The World We Deserve, the officially unofficial podcast for HBO's True Detective Anthology, brought to you by Bald Move. This conversation covers Season 1, Episode 8, titled Form and Void. From the dusty mesa, her looming shadow Questioning Geraci leads nowhere, forcing Rust and Marty back into the case files. Marty connects some dots that Rust never saw, which leads them to the house of Errol Childress, the groundskeeper from previous episodes. Errol lures Rust into a series of underground pathways as Marty calls for backup. They manage to kill Errol, but both are gravely injured in the process, just as backup arrives. As they recover, Rust and Marty come to a greater appreciation of their place in the universe. This is the the tail end investigation and where Marty finally gets the respect of Rust. Okay, yeah. He spots the paint job. He spots the paint job. Uh the the thing the interesting thing is the stuff with Jurassi, Sheriff Jurassi never really goes anywhere. It's a, it's yeah. a, it's a dead end. It is. Um, it's just another person who can uh give a reaction YouTube reaction video to that tape. <laughs> do you think that there is do you think he's telling the truth? And I, is it interesting I bought it, if he's and, not? and Russ bought it too, right? Which That's is more important. Thing. Yeah, he's smarter than us. Yeah. We, well, I don't, I don't know if you'd agree with that, but uh, he's, <laughs> as portrayed, he's certainly able to discern whether people are lying or not. Yeah. And he deems him. He had at least two minutes with the guy. Yeah. Um, and uh, but it was a big dead end until they got the big break of Marty. Uh, putting together the fresh paint job and the green ears. And it's kind of the way they portray it is a uh, kind of a moment of inspiration. The Russ said, we got to, we, you know, we got to go into this like we're totally green. Mm-hmm. I get fresh eyes on the situation. And then I just thought it was such a great moment. Russ looking at that picture and just breathing like, fuck you, man. I thought yeah. it felt, it felt good. Yeah. All this time I've been thinking, I'm going to have to do the heavy lifting myself. It and here you out, come with the piece of the vital piece of evidence. It turns out it's, it's the, the idiot that that uh, <laughs> breaks open the case wide open. Yeah. And, and that had been yeah. that's been letting leading up to payoff for a long time because we know that was a tension in their relationship that mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess it was largely unspoken. But when Russ actually said it, it's like, look, man, I do the work all around here and you just file the paperwork. Yeah. Like Marty knew it was true and it pissed him off, but it also was true. And this was the, res- the the payoff to that. We had a little bit of that last episode. Like, hey, glad to see you're working a sweat and doing, mm-hmm. you know, some pretty, I guess, junior detective stuff. But this was like a really a moment of inspiration. And I liked it. Yeah. I liked yeah, it. it was good. I mean, that connects them to this William Lee Childress guy. Right. Um, who is That's the guy who we'll find out later is strapped to the box springs. Yeah, yeah. And and. I found it odd with the similarity between Billy Lee Tuttle and William Lee Childress. Well, then this guy, did you notice his name is Errol William Childress? Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah. There's... So we've, we've got a first name, middle name connection going here. Yeah. A lot of, uh, like lot of uh, family traditions yeah. in this uh, family. Sam somehow got lost in the, the mix. <laughs> that, that name, not good enough. Yeah. Well, maybe that's the... the, the... Maybe they kept like a pure branch of their family that could carry on like the big politics stuff and give them the cover they need to continue being the sadistic devil worship cult. And yeah, that was that was Sam. OK, although it seems pretty clear that he's actually in on it as well. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so taxes, man. Tax forms always get you. They will. Yeah. You know, you declare a $265 paint job. You got to declare it because you don't want Uncle Sam to get his 15, 20 to 20 percent of that cut. You got to. Make sure that, that that gets put into tax forms, and that led to a business license, which led to an address. Are you kind of surprised that uh, they used the business address as the as Carcosa Central? Yeah, I mean that seems you know if you've got a devious plan going, you kind of want it out of the way. Uh, granted, that place is out of the way, but it's also still where people are living. It's got an address. It's got a phone number attached to it. I'm, I was, yeah. and and it's you know, it's like you don't shit where you eat. I you guarantee Reggie Ledoux did not have a fucking address listed on his taxes <laughs> to the middle of nowhere Cook site. Yeah, you don't you you don't shit where you eat. You don't devil worship where you sleep. I think that's <laughs> that's psycho one hundred and one. But yeah, I, is, is so is that? 
I thought the investigation wrapped up a little too cleanly and too conveniently, but that might be a symptom of uh, Nick Pizzolatto not being super interested in the resolution he wanted to get. He wanted to spend a sizable portion of the final episode, over half, to winding up the relationship of, of Rust and Marty in a satisfying way. So did you, yeah. if you look at it in that light, is it a problem that everything just kind of came together and... I'm curious what you mean by just came together, like that they had a hard path to Errol Childress. Just that, yeah, I mean, it and... seems like that's one of the problems I've had all along. And I've kind of uh, I've kind of mentally reconciled myself to it by saying that this is a a far cry from the cult. You know, this is essentially the Ku Klux Klan of 2015. They're they're not as powerful. Yeah, sure. They're baseline less intelligent, mm-hmm. uh, not as cunning, and not as careful about keeping the tracks. More in it for you know public shock value than actually any kind of mission that they're trying to accomplish. As as disgusting as that mission may be, yeah. in both cases. Um, so I guess maybe that's right. Okay, I mean, were you looking for a sloppier path, like a follow Duval kind of thing? Yeah, how they got to Ledoux. Something like, you know, uh, I guess like I a little know. less above board sort of. I, I don't know. It's like you, you got the wire. That's like the gold standard of like a really clever police work that that is hard fought yeah. and hard won mm-hmm. and and relies on a very minor slip up that the bad guys made once to to crack the thing wide open versus this yeah. is they just they've been doing business at Carcosa. Yeah. Okay. Like, there's a right. there's a there's a there's a home repair joint being ran out of the front side of Carcosa. That's a little weird. Okay, that seems to be the the core problem. I and you've got you all these it, fucking yeah. like you know if the police ever came there for any reason, tax evasion. There's you've got bodies all over the fucking place. It's just yeah. the, that's felt a little sloppy. But I think maybe that's supposed to be the theme that these guys were sloppy, and even as sloppy as they were, they still were successful. Yeah. Yeah, they were. I, I mean, I don't know if it comes into the the realm of hubris, of ego, like I was talking about last episode. Yeah. I think maybe there's a little bit of that wrapped up. Because the other thing is, if you you can be more flamboyant if you have a stranglehold on all of the official there's organs that. of state. If you are yeah. in the Senate, if you are all in the police the sheriff, force, yeah, if you've got judges, and you you can do whatever the hell you want. Mm-hmm. Sure, uh, I, I thought there were a, a couple of interesting things. You know, Marty. Marty does most of the the heavy lifting in this episode. He finds the the paint job that uh, could be the connection to the green-eared guy. He arguably saves um, them both. He does. Uh, doing something that Rust, I don't think, ever would have done. He goes to one of the detectives that, were, that was interviewing them in 2012 and says, hey, I'm about to go do something dangerous. If I give you the call, are you going to come help us? Uh, Rust never would have done that. Rust would have not trusted that this guy wasn't corrupt. He he wanted to take this all on himself. Uh, yeah. Marty, by doing that, saves both of their lives. And it was a big risk because Papineau... It is, yeah. Or Papineau could have just followed them and arrested them both. Yeah, or he could have been part of this whole thing, you know? Right. I mean... T- tipped off the... I don't, you don't know, know what... how far the tentacles reach in this conspiracy. <laughs> no Cthulhu No Cthulhu there. reference intended. Uh, but yeah, I, I thought that was interesting that the things that Rust wasn't connecting and the things that Rust wouldn't have done ultimately led to the solving of the case and the preserving of their lives. Yeah. And also just as a practical matter, him staying behind and finding the phone and making the call. Yeah. Instead of rushing off impetuously after the Carcosa man, uh, an- another thing that saved your life. Yeah. So how did you think, what did you think of this layer of evil? I mean, to me, it looked like a a very special Halloween episode of Hoarders. Which, okay, which one? Like inside the house or inside Carcosa? Let's talk, uh, you know, the the legitimate side of Carcosa. Okay, the the business. Yeah. (laughs) Business in the front. Party in the back. Uh, Some kind of party back there. Business in the front, pedos in the back is what it was. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. to me, that's... It was creepy, man. Yeah, it was creepy. There, beyond just like a hoarding, I, you know. I think the the scene that we have at the beginning with this incestuous relationship between, I guess, brother and sister here it seems like they're it. both calling this guy father. Um, that's what that's how I read it. They, the two detectives, when they're talking to Marty, he cut him off, but they're talking about DNA L, uh, analysis has revealed, I, and I think they said that they're at least half brother and sister. Okay, 
Uh, so I think that served effectively to set up a creepy scenario. Yeah. Be- beyond just the idea of a hoarder, you know? Yeah. Uh, that that was effective for me. <laughs> What'd you make of Errol's shifting into different dialogues and things? Because I, when I first saw this series, I saw him as a much smarter character. And yeah. I've read a couple of interviews since then. And then when I was rewatching it, I, I, I can't remember which interview it was, but Nick Piazzolato... It might have been the one at Steppenwall. It might have been the one he did with Variety. He mentions that Errol is is a mimicker, kind of like a, a talented Mr. Ripley, that he reads a lot of literature and he watches a lot of television. Um, yeah. But when he actually speaks at the end with Russ and he's got that almost sling blade thing going on, that's kind mm-hmm. of like a more measure of his, his true intellect. Yeah, that, that's what I've read, essentially, Okay, in, in the interviews, is that he has all these VHS tapes that he's watching and... Uh-huh. That's where he learned to enunciate, and that's why he does the accents and right. all this thing. But when he's touching his sister and, t- and asking her to tell her about grandpa and saying, "I'm can he smell the flowers?" That, that's the other thing is, man, they do a lot of really gross things without showing us. Like I don't mm-hmm. even want to. I, I'm throwing up in my mouth just thinking about them having sex. Yeah, but, I, I don't. Woody Harrelson walks into that place. And I feel his pain, like yeah. just taking a whiff of that air. Yeah, like like there is a that's, bathtub that's surrounded by air fresheners. Uh-huh. What the fuck goes on in there? It looks like maybe there are some bones on the floor. I can't I can't tell exactly, but it looks like that's where some dismemberment happens. Yeah, yeah. And me. then, so the other thing is like, uh, they got his father chained up to a bed frame in this little Carcosa shack. It's yeah. got, and I paused it to see if there's anything interesting on the walls. It's essentially quotes from the series. It's time is a flat circle. Yeah, I was going to say. Like, Carcosa, black stars rising. All the stuff is just scribbled over and over and over in different layers on the wall. Uh, are we to believe that he just died in the last day or two? I feel like that's, yeah, that's correct. And like is the that flies part are starting of, to gather? Is that a part of this guy's ascension? That like maybe this guy was still the Yellow King, and this this recent spat of murders and stuff are are Earl's attempts to ascend? Like I I don't know because I kind of like the fact that we didn't find out a lot about the cult's motivations and a lot of their real uh you know eschatology and religious mm. philosophy because ultimately it's madness anyway. Sure. Um. So leaving some of that stuff mysterious and creepy worked for me. Yeah, I think the thing that's strange to me is the connection between Rust and this cult. Because there's some sort of, it almost feels like a psychic type of connection between the things that Rust is saying, the things that this cult believes, some connection they believe that he has to the cult mm-hmm. itself. I don't, I don't understand any of where that fits in. Like how could Rust possibly be connected to it and and them calling him little priest and kind of seemingly knowing that he's coming, using terms that Rust is using previously in the series up on their walls. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of stuff that is there to clearly draw uh, connections, I don't know how they could possibly connect. I think it, the, the I'm still series just my, doesn't tell me that. I'm, I'm clinging to my theory that this was a... For whatever reason, they did a very public execution that had a, a high-profile police presence attached to it, and these are the two lead investigators, and somehow the cult has woven them into the fiction of their of, of, of their their cult. Is and that also, recent? Is that well? It, it goes it, back it at least to ninety-five. At least, yeah. Well, it also started ninety-five because uh, that's that's what um, Ledoux said. He's like, "I've seen you in my dreams." Where if you take that well, I mean, literally, Russ, there is a psychic connection. I mean, let's 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 let's, yeah, let's I, I blow know, this up cause... bigger. I think it's very Lovecraftian in the way that you could watch this as an interpretation of um, two mortal men going into this supernatural world and conquering evil. Mm-hmm. Like, there's nothing that directly says that there isn't some kind of backing of an elder god, and maybe this guy was about to ascend to Satan's throne or whatever. Like that's not an argument you can make metaphysically in the real world, but in 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 this fiction, it's just as likely that as it is just some random crazy murders, right? And I think the way they played, like, there's a lot of people disappointed that there wasn't more Lovecraftian. Well, that's where I'm kind of coming at it from. Is the things you see are weird and disturbing, certainly, but they're all 
ultimately grounded in reality. Like the only things that we see that are especially strange are rust visions, which he attributes to some some kind of chemical malfunction in his brain. Yeah, but like so And we can actually see are not real things that are happening, yes? Sure. But so to say that there's anything like supernatural actually going on, I think is a stretch. I don't know. Well, okay. Yeah, that that might be it might be a stretch, but I think that there is enough this there's enough that you could suggest that that it that you know, cuz it's like think about this like okay, You've got let, let's say that there is no shit witchcraft in the world and there is the, the the night before you bust into an old abandoned warehouse. There was a there's a cult sacrifice there and you mm-hmm. go in and there's like cloaks with pentagrams on the floor and there's blood and there's dismembered corpses and there's chicken sacrifices and there's knives. And you're like, man, this is a bunch of insane shit. This is, mm-hmm. this, but if you were there the night before and there's actually a spectral being communing with the people doing the sacrifices sure then that puts a completely different spin on it we are essentially the latter part we're coming into this this abandoned civil war fort and seeing all this stuff and thinking this is a bunch of crazy shit maybe okay. i mean like i said maybe there's <laughs> that's why i say it's a huge stretch like, and that and yes it, you're you're pulling rust does have non-contextual stuff like rust does have delusions but uh, on the other hand this guy said he was building carcosa or he didn't say this, but he said that he was trying to open up this thing on this astral plane and he can see the infernal hellscape uh-huh. in front of him. So it's like, is it possible that Rust had a hallucination at that exact time? Or is it possible that he actually glimpsed a little bit of what that guy was seeing? And I think that's very I, Lovecraft. I get, I get did you where see, you're coming from, did you but see, I don't think it's on the screen ever. Did you see Cthulhu come out of the ocean, or was it a volcano erupting? Were you seeing clouds and ten- or were you seeing uh, wings and tentacles, or were you seeing volcanic ash and plumes of? Lo- I mean, that's the thing. And when you when you got a person who's mentally unstable, which is sure. another Lovecraftian trope too. Mm. I to me, I felt I thought it felt Lovecraft as hell, and I was very satisfied. Like. I was never one of those people expecting to see wing bat wings and tentacles. And- okay, I, I I do agree that it felt Lovecraftian. I just don't think that there's anything necessarily to those theories because um, the the show just hasn't shown us that. I do what I do like is the story that it's telling, and that seems to be the main thrust of Pizzolatto's comments as far as like what you're supposed to take. What we, he would have people take away from this show is the idea of stories and and the world existing in the stories that we tell ourselves and tell other people um and you know now his story has become part of that uh the robert chambers stuff is about a story about a story that drives people insane there, there's a lot of like inception style layers there right well like there, there's a you know a prominent some people speculated that the videotape is a you know a literal king and yellow situation to where when you see it yeah. you go insane and but marty didn't go insane didn't he like, I mean, he got angry and upset and then he came back from it. I mean, can is that something you can go insane and then come back? Like, well, I don't know. I mean, it's something that it's, some, it's something that changes you forever. And that I, I thought that that was something that they hinted at that Marty, when he breaks down after he sees his wife and kids, like he's just been through a lot of shit and his, okay. his brain's kind of like checking out on now. Yeah, it does. It's, seem, just, it's not the madness that I expect from something. Yeah. Cthulhu-esque, right? It's not like a a uh, the ring situation no. where like seven days, but it does seem to profoundly affect people. But oh, yeah, I, I imagine it takes there's videos, there's, whatever's on that wood. There's videos on the Internet that will do that to you right today. Sure. You yeah. Know, don't go looking for them. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so. I don't know. I, I thought it was very Lovecraftian and satisfying, but also something that if you look, if you're looking for tentacles and wings, you could find it. If you're looking for a straightforward, rational explanation, it was right there as well. That's the thing. I think that's the angle I'm coming at it from. Yeah. Um, I've always kind of been more interested in that side of the story anyway. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know that. So that brings me to a conversation that we had a long conversation before this podcast started that I don't want to repeat in its entirety. As here. has been the hallmark throughout this process. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is, a, this is a pretty controversial show as far as I'm concerned. You know, some people think it's an absolute work of genius. Some people think it's a good show with a lot of interesting themes. Some people think it's misogynist bullshit. I'm closer to There's the a, genius. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm somewhere in that middle tier. Okay. Where it's like, I really enjoyed the show. I like the themes that it was touching on. I don't think there's anything supernatural. And I don't think these guys are geniuses. I've gone back and I've read 
a lot of interviews with them, both Corey Fukunaga and Nick Pizzolatto. And the things they say don't make me believe, and, and the things that are on screen don't make me believe that they, in fact, executed a vision perfectly. And that's not, you know, I don't think that's necessarily the job of all creators is to perfectly get onto screen what they what they had in their head. And if they don't, it's an abject failure. I just think they didn't they didn't quite execute as well as everyone is giving them credit for. Why? So Audrey is a big part of this. Audrey is a huge part of this. Like Corey Fuganaga in an interview has basically said the Audrey stuff was never meant to go anywhere except for Marty is a bad father. Marty's neglectful and this is her trying to get attention from this man, drawing pictures of boobs and penises and uh, doing these weird arranged gangbang things and then acting out with the threesome in a car later on. That's just her crying out for attention from her father. And all the spirals and shit on the wall were complete. Like I've read interviews with the production designer too, who said we went next door to my neighbor, got a bunch of her kids drawings and brought them to the set. Okay. Like never met, didn't even notice that spiral in there. Never intended for that to mean anything. Yeah. Uh, I don't like, unless you don't take him at his word there, I don't know how you ascribe any more, any further meaning to the daughter stuff. And that's where I feel like it falls flat is that, that looked like it had intent at the beginning. And it, I think it did have and it felt like it had intent. It just literally never goes anywhere. It could be that because that's the other thing. It's like I don't buy that this was just a plea for attention. I do think that, you know, you've got a girl that young who's drawing sexually explicit things and doing sexually explicit staging that she is acting out on things that she herself has experienced. Now, this never you're right, that never went anywhere, but it did a good job of suggesting Marty's, you know, all these all these self-deceptions he was having about doing these things to blow off steam to protect his family was self-serving bullshit. And if he paid more oh, attention, yeah. uh, then maybe his daughter would have turned out, maybe she wouldn't have had the three-way. Uh, maybe she wouldn't have ended up uh, having to take antipsychotics. Maybe she would have had a more healthy, stable. But on the other hand, everything kind of turned out okay yeah. in the end. So you're right, and and it could be a, an accidental conflux where they put stuff in there that was more than they intended to show, and then also the set dresser happened to get yeah. some really weird stuff. Oh, this that, is cool! I'm going to throw this up prominent. That that people were yeah. able to then you know start sniffing the psychosphere and making things out of, and it's like it feels like the answer kind of lies a little bit in between, you know, and and, and also it's like what is the what, what's your thoughts on the primacy of authorial intent because i'm very skeptical i think that it's a piece of information like when ridley scott says uh deckard is a replicant in blade runner that is a piece of information that i can consider in analyzing the work as a whole but it's not the end of the story okay. i don't think like you know david chase came out tomorrow and said tony soprano is still alive and well in new jersey i would uh -huh. say no actually it's bullshit okay that's that's not right yeah so i think there's a distinction to be made between the creator's intent versus what actually made it to the screen and your interpretation of it, right? Like, I, I think you can say, I'm going to disregard the creator's intent because it didn't make it to the screen, and here's my interpretation of what I saw. Okay. Um, but to to come out and say, like, oh, that person is lying. person is clearly lying because it's not on the screen, and here's, here's all my reasons. Even if you're right that that yeah. is not evidenced on the screen, it doesn't mean they're a liar. It means that they failed they they didn't perfectly realize their vision right well here's another here's another way an interesting way to, to 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 take this like george lucas okay uh made a really fun and resonant piece of pulpy fiction back in the 70s called star wars yeah and then people started blowing smoke up his ass about this being a reaction to the Vietnam War and about how this is taking the myths of Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung and, and he fabricated this intentionally to burrow into our brains like so many eels from SETI Alpha 5. Uh -huh. And he started buying that and then promulgating it. And then you see the prequel trilogy where he intentionally started doing some of those things and how shitty it was and you start thinking... That's a man who's lying in the opposite direction. He's saying he intended a lot more than he actually did. Yeah, he's taking credit for it. And the thing that makes it complicated is I, I'm not really comfortable, comfortable in saying that anyone's a liar. 
But I also think that there, if I'm a creator and someone is accusing me of lying or fibbing, and, and maybe the lie is partially to maintain a shroud of mystery around the project, mm-hmm. where you've got Fukunaga saying one thing and you got Nick Pizzolatto saying the other, and that kind of like they could either just not say anything, which is that's what, what I, I vastly think they should do. Yeah, that's what I'd vastly prefer. Like I'm starting yeah. to come around to the Bill Simmons of like. I wish you guys would just shut the fuck up and let your work stand <laughs> yeah, yeah. on its own. Um, and But you've got potentially, if I'm a creator, would I rather be called a liar or someone who is fooling the audience? Because essentially that's what creative works are. Then they're, someone who has failed they're creative to ways of telling fictions, which is another way of saying lies. Then does someone say you failed to get what you wanted across onto the page or onto the screen or through my musical ear holes? Like, so I would. I, I don't know. I, one implies deceit, and one implies in like flaws. I I don't. Well, they're storytelling. They're all I, storytellers, I think, and if this furthers the meta narrative that furthers what they see happening in the plot, then I feel like that's appropriate. Here's the thing: if somebody listens to our podcast uh-huh. and they flat out say, "I think Aaron is lying about what he thinks about True Detective," they frequently do. They like, do. If I have a negative take, How does a that lot make of you people feel? versus I, like saying. I, I don't think Aaron articulated himself very well here. Like he he clearly meant to say something, but I don't understand what that was because he didn't say it well enough. Which is more offensive to you? I, I think it's being called a liar, frankly. <laughs> I don't know, because the only time I really get bothered by it is when someone like intentionally twists my words or dis- takes okay. half of my argument yeah, yeah. and takes my thing. And like, no, I clearly articulated what I thought and gave supporting evidence and you just ignored it to cling to your preconceived notion of what you thought the thing would be. And there's nothing wrong. Like you can believe what you want to believe, but don't twist my words and attack me to make your own argument stronger. Sure. And the other thing that muddies the waters here about between the Fukunaga and Pizzolatto interviews is they both clearly have some kind of fucking ax to grind. I don't know what it is, but you know, you got people saying, we've heard stories that you guys didn't get along. And Pizzolatto, no, we get along great. Corey Fukunaga, no comment. You got Nick Pizzolatto taking digs at the direction, never mentioning him by name during the commentary. Yeah. You've got, like, Fukunaga's weird Emmy acceptance speech. Like, the fact that, you know, he's no longer working on the project, even though he's an executive producer. There's some beef, and I wonder if... Part of it is Fukunaga's hearing everyone saying what a genius Pizzolatto is, and Pizzolatto's just running with it. And there's also, you know, the fact that Pizzolatto's not giving some as much credit as maybe people are due with some of the inspirations. Hmm. And they okay. had creative differences, and this is kind of like getting at his goat. So he's, I, I don't know. There's like, something there, and I'm with you. Like, yeah. It, there's a vibe that comes across. I feel like I'm Russ Cole stepping out of the car going, this is the place. Like, mm-hmm. these guys have some kind of beef. I'm but... smelling ash and, <laughs> and, and aluminum. I, but I don't know what it is, right? It's hard to it's hard to say, to place blame, A, or to even say what the crux of the, the problem is. And that's what it makes it really weird reading all these post hoc interviews where they're saying, we didn't intend this, we didn't intend that. We put these shots of different creepy locations in the hospital because how else are we going to transition it? I'm like, man... I don't know that I buy when, when all of that. When the director tells you that, I think you gotta you gotta go with it. But these, like, those shots did clearly have a meaning. They weren't just transitions. Or yes, what? they were transitions, and they deliberately led to the transition of Rust and Mart talking about how you can't solve all of the evils in the world. You can only eat what's put on your plate. Mm-hmm. And you know the fact that time's a flat circle. That that you know the this resolution at Carcosa with Earl. Childress is the Reggie Ledoux uh, assassination writ large. And this is why I make the distinction between, you know, interpreting what you see on the screen and calling the creators liars when they say they meant none of it. Like, you are free to read into those scenes, but don't tell the creator that he clearly meant something by them when he's saying he's not. Even if they might have an agenda, and that agenda could be as simple as preserving, like, Maybe Fukunaga's annoyed that Pizzolatto is giving all these interviews in the press and is throwing stuff in the opposite direction. Like, God damn it, this guy is spelling all this shit that's, out. And that's fine. This is all speculation. This yes. is all just cle- just straight out of people's asses. But that's all of critical enough. Like I said, I mean that that's fine when you're talking about the themes and stuff on the show. But when you're going into the real world and saying, "Oh, we're well, clearly," like, I think there's a beef here, and like 
I, I think Fukunaga's the one on the wrong and he's throwing shade and all this stuff. I I don't know that none of us are are able to make those kind of statements. No, but it's because like, we don't know. It's a it's a critical debate that's way older than both of us about how much you should respect authorial intent. And I think I don't I don't think it's fair to say I completely discount it. But I, I also don't want to call the guy a liar when he clearly yeah. doesn't have any intent. He says he doesn't have any intent for that scene. If I say I, I'm fine to read intent, like say, oh, here's how it could connect and all that stuff. But if I say he actually did have an intent and he's lying to us, that's offensive. Well, you know, it's like Pizzolatto said in one of the interviews, this story is a cautionary tale about be careful about what stories you listen to when you're telling stories about life. Be sure. careful what stories you, t you listen to when it comes to the making and production of True Detective. <laughs> I, be careful of the stories you're telling too sure be very careful sure, of sure. those stories now the thing is is like i feel like that somehow this information has depreciated your respect for the filmmakers yeah a little bit how so uh to the extent that I, it's a failure of their vision that they got across you know it's it's a lot like lost a lot like Lost, where people have read so much into it and they've been looking for all these tiny little details and they think that everything means something yeah. to the degree where it's impossible to fulfill those expectations. You but know? See, that that's another thing in supporting my argument. You've got like Chris Carter with the X-Files and uh, help me out with the guy from X-Files. From, from, uh, Lost? from Lost? Lindelof, Lindelof and Cuse. Lindelof and Cuse. Yeah. Those guys basically were lying from day one about their intent and about their plans and they were just stringing us along and uh -huh. I'm supposed to forget that when I'm looking at Fukunaga and Pizzolatto that have some kind of private beef that we don't are privy to. I'm yeah, supposed to I say think that if you're looking at leftovers, that's fair to to extrapolate from Cuse and Lindelof said one thing, so all of creative people are liars. So that's, I mean, that's a stretch. That's you know? the difference between a, a twenty a twenty year old in politics and a forty year old in politics. A twenty year old could conceivably be like, those other politicians are liars. This my guy is the one telling the truth. We're forty Do years take, old. Take it to all of lying. humanity. Yes. Everyone is lying to you at all times. Yes. Don't believe anything you hear. Yes. You're going to drive yourself insane, man. But that's the way the world works, man. <laughs> okay. Well, fine. I don't. I don't know. What We're that all says wearing about... a mask of some sort. No one. No one presents a truly authentic face to the world. Oh my God, you're going deep down the rabbit hole, man. It's, that's what I believe, man. All right, you're starting to sound like Russ. I think people make you're various kill attempts yourself being, after this podcast. I think, I think, <laughs> won't you feel bad if I do? <laughs> I, maybe. Uh, maybe. Uh, especially when you're going to go to my apartment and there's going to be this fucking twig sculpture with skulls and, and yellow drapery on it and, yep. and it's going to be this whole thing. It'll be True, True Detective Season 3. Honestly, I don't really care that the pictures on the walls was unintentionally didn't mean anything and I, I don't really care that Audrey... Really? No, you don't, I don't care that these things that seem obviously to link his daughter to the occult don't. I think when you have any kind of investigation, and this investigation was as much about what is really going on with Rust and Marty as it was about what's going on with the Yellow King, you have to have red herrings, or else the plot is way too simplistic. Like any investigation is not A, then goes to B, then goes to C, then I goes agree. to D, then goes to the bad guy. I, I you agree, have to have things that go this nowhere. This doesn't feel like a red herring. The the Jurassic stuff feels like a red herring, feels like a dead end. There are several other dead ends in this show during the investigation that feel okay to me. This just feels like a loose thread. It felt like it meant to be part of the plot, but it never realized its potential. Well, it could be that I was just more relieved that his daughter wasn't more directly involved okay. because I mean that's fair. You know, but... Like I kind of like there was a lot of disturbing things, like the babies wrap, you know, the the little baby sized corpses wrapped in things and hung oh, in yeah. devil traps, and yeah, enough misery in the final scene that like having another screaming little girl or or one with a personal connection to Marty or Russ in the middle of it would have maybe even been just too much. So sure. it's like maybe I'm, I'm with you. I'm I'm fine that that's a red herring and a uh, a more thematic thing than a plot thing, but I am okay. like I don't have any resentment about being jerked around about that. Like again, I I love the psychosphere stuff and the fact that less than half of it paid off. I think felt about right. That felt it feels like mm -hmm. about the batting average you'd expect in a real life investigation. I don't you know. There's, there's something the about it. That Think just about serial, the podcast. Mm -hmm. My God, that's a whole po that's a whole investigation that led nowhere. 
It was See, that's, fascinating. That's a difference, though. That's part of the investigation, right? There are going to be dead ends in investigation. I expect that. But I don't, don't you... expect thematic dead ends in a television show, in a fictional constructed world. Yeah, maybe you should. No, I don't think I should. All right. <laughs> I disagree there. Okay. think about Russ's transformation in the in the last episode from someone who is going to tie things off to someone who has a hopeful out view on li- or outlook on life. And I feel like we're going to disagree yet again because a lot of this stuff touches on things that we've debated in private a lot before. Like okay. to me so- Rust had an authentic spiritual moment that he can't explain or substantiate through science or mm-hmm. any kind of reason but he experienced it and he felt it and it's real to him. And it felt like uh, he's the type of person that would be open to that experience. And now... Interesting, okay. I See, I feel similarly, except I attribute it differently, I guess. Okay. I, I attribute it to a sort of breakdown. The, the way I'm reading this is, I don't think he ever had time to grieve for his daughter, is the way I read it. Like... This was his moment to break down all of his defenses and say, I am very sad about this thing. Part of my worldview is coming from this event. I've never acknowledged it before. I've just continued to build upon this guilt and this uh, sadness. Mm -hmm. And, And I've built it all up into my current worldview. In that moment, he had a slight change of heart where he realized, you know, that's what I've been doing. And... Now I'm seeing I'm coming back the other way. The light is starting to win both for him and for the world as he sees it. Yeah. So I, less less metaphysical and more just like a breakthrough in his emotions. But he's talking about this altered state of consciousness, you know, and this, this slipping below a level of blackness that was above the black disease yeah. and a coma and being able to feel his daughter's love and his father's love in a way that he might, you know, obviously mm-hmm. his daughter died when she's very young uh, and his father and him had a very troubled relationship, but he's now just able to feel that authentic love makes him think that maybe there is something beyond just, you know, because because last episode he said, I sure hope that lady's not right. And the death is is not the end to someone who's saying, I now kind of look forward to the day where I can experience that. I'm not afraid of it, but I'm also not chasing it anymore because I'm open to my path. You know, I'm not done walking my path. I think, it's, it's okay. like I said, like I don't I, I haven't had an authentic religious experience like that or a near death experience. I have had other experiences that have been somewhat profound and and life-changing um and you know that's the thing like it's weird you you know we're both atheists and we have a lot of metaphysical fights about spirituality and stuff because i think i'm open to the possibility and maybe it's a story i tell myself but i'm open to the possibility of us not fully understanding consciousness Mm -hmm. and how consciousnesses could be connected in a universal way that I don't believe in reincarnation as is taught by some of the world's great religions. And I don't believe in heaven as is taught in the world's great uh, religions, but I do believe in the conservation of energy and matter Mm. and that I don't know how consciousness relates to that. And, and, and this could be a God of the gap situation where I'm hiding in our understanding, but I'm open to there being something more. It's not this human experience, and it's not something that we could directly relate to. But to the extent that you could have a near-death experience, you know, maybe it's just your synapses firing, and you know, the, your brain turning off the lights before everybody goes home, and you're just experiencing a bunch of weird shit. Sure. Or maybe it's a gateway to something else. I don't know. Yeah. But I think if you have that experience, like, there's not a science book in the world that could probably shake you from sure. No, it. I. Yeah, I, I give people a little more leeway when they say, you know, how do you tell someone that? 
what they think they saw wasn't real. Yeah, when someone now says, I, I felt Jesus touch my heart, mm-hmm. I'm not going to argue with them. Sure. I mean, it's impossible to argue that. Right. So, no point. Um, yeah, I I don't know. I'm, I'm very much more a naturalist, I guess, um, that consciousness is an emergent property. Don't trim your ball hairs. Chemical... N- n- what? <laughs> Is that what that means? I miss I misspoke then. <laughs> I thought that the blatant nudity in the studio around here is a bit much, but yes, it's a certain yes. explains things. Uh no, I I don't know. Consciousness is more of an emergent property for me. All right. And less of a metaphysical, supernatural sort of connection. Um but I regardless, that's beside the point. I, I don't think I think this is Russ's way of describing an emotional breakdown that he doesn't quite understand. Mm. A, a sort of metaphysical description of something very natural happening. And I think that's one of the brilliant things is because it could just be a catharsis. He is weeping for yeah. the first time and letting himself feel these things that he has built this fortress of nihilism and, and solitude around himself. Yeah. And I think it's telling that both he and Marty have a similar breakdown in this yeah. episode where Marty's there with his family. The only thing that he professed meant anything to him. Yeah. He lost that along the way because of his own stupidity. Yeah. And now that he sees what he could have had, yeah. Um it's it's a bittersweet moment, right? He's he's there with these people, but that moment isn't going to last. Certainly sure. not with Maggie. I don't I don't think she's there to get engaged and remarried. <laughs> yeah. No, I But it's almost a sad moment for him. Whereas Rust is kind of a breakthrough and happiness in you know, a small fraction of the happiness normal people would feel. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's one way to look at Marty. I think another way to look at is, yeah, sadness at, like, look at what he still has and what could that have been if he hadn't been a shit in his Like, All imagine right. what this yeah. what this would have been like if he had kept his family together and not strayed and, like, what he's feeling if those people were, like, if he was truly a father to those girls and a husband to his ex-wife, yeah, what that would feel like versus what he's feeling now. Sure, that's why I call it a sad moment. Yeah, yeah. The reality is very different from what he would have had for him. But it's also like, look at what a shit I've been and yeah. what a terrible bad man I've been, and yet look at these people that still care at me, care for that, me. That's true. That's mm-hmm. another valid way to to take that interpretation. Now, there's a lot of people that their immediate reaction was, "This is cheap." This feels forced. I don't like this development with Rust, this spirituality, and I don't get that at all. I felt like every bit of it was earned and it was very impactful, and it's a far happier ending from True Detective than I <laughs> than I suspected we were getting, but uh-huh. it also didn't mean that that felt inauthentic. It felt very True Detective, just in a happy way instead of a soul-crushing, depressing way. You know, I didn't feel that way. I don't, I don't agree with the people who say that this was a huge leap and a character betrayal and stuff like that, but I kind of see what where they're coming from because ultimately this happens in an unconscious state for mm-hmm. Rust. He doesn't have like necessarily an experience that we can see or put our finger on that says this is this is what changed Rust, right? They, it's it's some kind of elusive thing even for him but i thought that scene of him like slowly zooming in on his battered face where his eyes are half open and then it reverses the camera angle and you're looking at his reflection looking at the window yeah at the stars but it's it's the beginning of a dawn like you can see the rosy glow of the sun coming up to me that is a very cinematic way of showing this character development and then he later articulates it i think beautifully sure and again, you know, like we said, to the extent that this is a cautionary tale of be careful to the stories you listen to and let yourself believe. You can believe in the Carcosa and the King in Yellow, or you can believe that we was was born in a universe of blackness and the light is winning, which is literally true. Like from a cosmological standpoint, this is another thing I thought was interesting that they brought this back around that after the Big Bang, there was something like 300,000 to a million so years before hydrogen was able to cool down and coalesce under gravity to ignite into stars. Yeah. And if you think about what the universe was like that, it literally was. It would be complete darkness. It's for it's formless void that let there be light, you know? Sure. Uh, yeah, it's a very biblically inspired sort of feeling. The uh, the contra to that is that it, eventually the universe will experience <laughs> a heat death and there will uh-huh. be there'll be eternal blackness forever and ever and ever. So okay, first of all, I think the problem that those people have is that there's no motivation within 
the things that happen to Rust during the course of the show. It doesn't seem it's all off screen. It's all in mm. his head. It's all, you know, very ethereal and. But no nothing, one questions can... how he he was presented without you know as this nihilist character with a with with similar amounts of off screen uh, well, indications think, yeah. of how he got to that point, and everyone questioned. No one questioned it. But you do. You hear about his daughter's death, and I think there's enough to extrapolate. Like this is a man who is very affected by that event and has developed on a path that that comes from that event. I will say that I would, if Rust had committed suicide, like because as he's coming to and he's seeing the dawn. And he's hearing, I think we're in, intended to infer that he's hearing these police reports about how, you know, his investigations have all been uncovered and like people are shocked at the details. But Sam Tuttle insists that his family, like those rumors were false. So it's like they're getting away with it again. Like it would have been felt just as real to me as if he had slit his wrist and bled out at the hospital. It would have okay. been a far yeah. different more bleak ending for true oh, detective yeah. but it also would have felt as equally earned as the ending that we got so i guess if i was going to flip a coin and choose you know slit your wrist depression versus sure <laughs> you know uh warm substance uh gooey uh, afterlife i'm going to go with the warm gooey loving afterlife all right i'm with you uh and this ties back in i want to talk about the light and the dark and the the stars here this ties back in with what i was talking about with the 1800s view of of the heavens, the stars, and sure. uh, how, you know, the pinpoints of light that we see, the stars, are just the ones that we can see right now because the others, uh, the light from the others hasn't made it to us, and eventually the entire sky will be lit up at night with with the infinite pinpoints of starlight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's a very, you know, the light is winning. That that ties very much into that idea as well. It, yeah. it, Russ can see a point when... You know, right now there's a lot of darkness, but maybe in the future, at some point, there will be all light. Yeah, we we actually recorded a podcast for the True Detective season one last year in March 2014 after it concluded because we didn't have time to do the whole thing. But we wanted, you know, we liked it enough and we engaged in a little bit of like fan fiction. Like what do we think was next for Russ and Cole, which is it might be entertaining if you go back and and uh find that uh-huh. i don't know even how you do i guess you click on the true detective tag and scroll back a bit or I'll, you know what i'll link it in the show notes okay there if you, you want to see what our immediate reaction to season one versus you know this this reaction because mm-hmm. i i listened to that this morning to you know was why i was working on the psychosphere notes and stuff like that and i was amazed that we essentially set out an outline of exactly the coverage that we wanted to do for season one, and we executed on it. Okay, cool. Which doesn't happen <laughs> all the time around here. Yeah, let me tell you, in deciding how to cover this season, we did not go back and consult that podcast. No, we did not. Maybe so. we should have, because it ended up being exactly like I want. I got to do the things I wanted to do. You got to do things you wanted to do, and it was exactly the time that we said it was going to deliver right. on. And Perfect. Thank God, Trudy Ted got pushed back by a couple months, though. Yeah. Because uh, man, it was a lot, a lot of last Bro. minute work to get it, get it, get it here. Yeah, and I mean, two months ago, we wouldn't have had the time to do sure what, what we did. All right, so this is going to be uh, a little different Psychosphere edition because there's not a lot of forward-looking things, surprisingly. <laughs> on the last episode. On the last yeah. episode of an anthology that the new season is going to have nothing to do with this one, we think, unless they, they pull some kind of Ryan Murphy four seasons from now, try to retroactively tie everything together. Nope. What can we learn about the Psychosphere from season one that applies to season two? I think that the Psychosphere can still be relevant if we just are investigating this, whatever the mystery, whatever the the murder thing is, whatever the investigation is. Okay. There's still going to be false trails. There's still going to be foreshadowing. There's still going to be hints to be buried. And 
I want to try this out. Like, cause you know, we talked about the stuff with his daughter's pictures on the wall and the stuff with the heights of the daughters being marked and Mm -hmm. some of that stuff that just didn't go anywhere. But then there's also things like rust looking like a priest in the first episode and standing in front of the the crosses and the allusions to him being looking like a priest uh, that did pay off. The spaghetti faced monster stuff paid off. The lawnmower man theory paid off. The Mm -hmm. five guys in the Mardi Gras, Cajun Mardi Gras costumes paid off, not in major ways, certainly in things that foreshadowed the ending. Yeah. So. I think from this point forward, just like we had a discussion about authorial intent and how they executed the plan, what we can't let ourselves consider is that everything means something. There's going to be a lot of things we see in season two that are either accidents or stuff we're reading too far into it or illusions that were intended, not intended to be made. Well, if you notice, that's been my stance the entire time. <laughs> right. Is that most of this is bullshit, right? Yes. Yes. And that will continue to be so in season two. But here's the thing. The stuff that actually paid off was front and center in the camera. Like the spaghetti face picture was not hanging on the back wall. No. Rust, we saw his eyes looking and then we saw a close up of the picture of the five Cajun uh, trick or treaters uh, on their horses. Mm -hmm. We got to see an interview with the lawnmower man. I mean, there's things that happen that are in the foreground are definitely, I think, valid parts of psychosphere. I'm going to be very skeptical of background things. For example, owls in churches and whether mm, yeah. you know a thing is a ghost or real. I'm going to consume that those things are interesting thematically and maybe they're fun to point out. But anytime a theory is based on one of those things and not based on something that the camera has actually lingered on in the, in the foreground, I'm going to be very skeptical about their predictive value. Okay. I think that's fair given the track record of this show. Okay. Um, I, I, I know like, I feel like lost really started this off. Maybe twin peaks did. I don't know. Or like, X. I mean, I've twin never peaks, seen twin X peaks. files. Uh, but certainly for me, lost was the first time where I was like, Oh man. Okay. The things in the background actually do pertain to the episode either directly for the plot or thematically, certainly like books on shelves, um, that kind of stuff. Okay. You mentioned you had some questions about Earl Childress and his overall relation to the plot and to the cult. Yeah. Something I I was reading around on Reddit trying to figure out this, uh, this little priest thing, uh, why he's calling Russ little priest and all this stuff. And somebody came up with the idea that, Perhaps as someone who was abused by this cult, as as we know, Errol Childress grew up in it. Um, it potentially, that's where he got his scarring. We don't know. Um, but, you know, they, they like to run with that stuff. So th- they were saying that maybe as, you know, an, an acolyte of this, but also a severely, a di- person who was severely damaged by it, he is replicating what he's been taught um, and, and carrying that stuff out, but in a way that is more public that will get noticed and that will bring it into this whole thing. Do you, th- do you think there's any way is, that that fits into the end of the show? Is that subconscious or conscience? I don't know. They don't really go into that. And I, like if I had to say it would, yeah, I would say it's subconscious. It would have to be. Cause you're right. I mean, one of his many long speeches at the end about the take the broads path, little priest. And that's like, these are the things done to me, but now yeah, like, yeah. like it seems like there was this ritual of abuse that he went through that he's perpetuating and maybe he is trying to blow, uh, blow the lid off of it. Now there's one kind of head cannon that I've had that, um, Way back in the days, the great, great grandpappies of Carcosa, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I, I wonder if the fact that this is this is actually the setting of Carcosa is a Civil War era fort. It's called uh, yeah. Fort Macomb that apparently you can uh, I don't know if it's open to the public, but it is a real location that they set this on. And I wonder if that, you know, our country being the the, the age that it is like you can't really have much things to go back. Sure. Before the Civil War, certainly uh-huh. the Revolutionary War era, you know, you've yeah. got like the the star fortification of Quebec and old Quebec City and stuff like that. But you can't get older than that. I wonder if like originally this was just a bunch of old wealthy land owning plantation owning pedophiles mm-hmm. that perpetuated stuff amongst their slave population and amongst their own family. And they told stories to maintain their power over people. 
their victims yeah. believed those stories and gave them power, and they started taking them ever more literally. Yeah. And this led to the kind of sloppiness and overconfidence that we see today because clearly the Dora Lang victim was staged publicly. And the one hanging from the bridge was as well. And it's also tied to some kind of ascension. Like, uh-huh. is this like some kind of Sith Lord thing where the the king in yellow or I mean, because because one of the things is I think that stick figure with the three skulls and the yellow skull and the the, the three arms and all that stuff. I think that literally is the king in yellow. Hmm. Okay. That that's like the idol that they worship so that you are. You're vying to be like either the king in yellow incarnate or you're wanting to be his mouthpiece okay. until you ascend. And that is – I wonder if you got the Sith Lord thing where you've got these acolytes that are going to eventually bump you off or use you as an ascension process it's in the same way that Errol has captured his father and has you know tortured and – I don't know what you would call that. Like some kind of Seven-style bullshit. Confined and tortured yeah. them as a way to – It's weird. I don't understand – that relationship. Oh, I don't. I don't think we're supposed to. And again, I. That's I, the thing. That's chalk me up to a person that is glad that the cult was more mysterious because all this stuff is really silly. Uh, there was an interesting thing about Steve. Uh, God, what's his name? Jurassi, something like that. Yeah, the the sheriff that they interrogate on the boat. Uh-huh. Uh, no jumper cables and batteries required. It turns out. Yeah. Um, that he was wearing this necklace that has a taw cross. Um, on when he when he's being interrogated on the boat with Rust and Marty, and this is like a very uh, early Christian sign, and I guess I guess something that Franciscans still use to represent the cross and crucifixion. But also, there's something in like Ezekiel where they talk about uh, Ezekiel seeing this vision of men getting their foreheads marked, men that were sighing um, over the conditions in the city. They get marked with a special mark. And a lot of like apocryphal biblical scholars say that that mark was actually the taw. And this is something that kind of another mm-hmm. one of those things that try to take a an Old Testament connection that doesn't have anything about Christ. Spoiler alert. The Old Testament's <laughs> not about Jesus. <laughs> you don't say. It's about a coming Messiah. And then the cross, yeah. which is a Christian symbol to kind of merge this together. People are saying that that was a taw symbol. And the upshot of this theory mm-hmm. is that, you know, we didn't get a lot of de- dealing with the sprawl that that Russ was talking about that like you know essentially this is again this is a uh, uh this is a Ledoux situation where you got the minor guy but the really rich powerful people that are still yeah you know part of this cult are getting off scot free that that this guy wearing the symbol on his neck is potentially seeing that he is someone marked by the yellow king so th- so this is all to say he's lying. He's all lying. He got away, <laughs> and Rust isn't as as supernaturally good at his okay. job as that we're led to believe. Hmm. Especially since I guess this particular symbol is tied to the cross more in a blood sacrifice kind of way than a symbol of faith kind of way. It's almost yeah, like older I, and more pagan somehow. I guess I don't buy that reading as much as I buy that the show is not lying to me and that Rust can actually figure people out. Well, but I think that rust also his meditation on i had that guy yeah I, true. his true. face is dirty and he was slain but i should have gotten him that's also allows you to have this interpretation too it doesn't go anywhere because mm. we already know that they didn't get everybody sure. again this is that you know it's, it's literally like the reggie ledoux situation uh charlie lang said these were rich powerful people doing this cult earl Ch- childress is not a rich or powerful man i mean there's still some tuttles around so yeah you're right i mean maybe they could have if they had had the opportunity to question him, gotten some information that led them further up the chain, but I don't know how that's possible, given that he was hell-bent on killing them both. <laughs> so there's another one that, a little spoiler, or not spoiler, an Easter egg, uh, when Rust and Marty are looking up at the stars, yeah. they're looking at the Orion constellation, which before you know the Greeks and Romans kind of like fixed these constellations in their eyes, uh, you know, Orion being this great hunter, that that was also part of this uh, earlier constellation called the Sorcerer. And the Sorcerer was this man with like goat legs and big deer antlers on his forehead. Mm. Uh, and they thought that this, you know, I've not seen any actual people like Pizzolatto or Fukunaga types embrace or reject or whatever this theory, but a lot of people saw some interesting symbology. And I'm going to link an article talking about the Sorcerer Constellation, because if you look at the pictures of like the the ancient uh, like cave paintings was depicted on and some of the very early uh, 
you know, late antiquity, early middle ages artwork. It's very creepy in a true detective type way. Um, but a lot of people like the symbology of you can see it as the hunter, which could represent Marty and Rust, or you could see it as the Yellow King and his influence still being triumphant. Hmm. Uh, I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, Also, this whole thing about Rust's vision, you know, I alluded to this in the main cast about this being, uh, you know, a Hellraiser type situation. Okay. How familiar are you with the Hellraiser, the Clive Barker? I I saw one. Uh, I know he comes out of a puzzle box, though. I don't I don't know where you're what you're getting at. So these this is like these acolytes, uh, the Pinhead and his and his crew are using pain and suffering and misery. Yeah. Um, and also sexual pleasure and other things to open up a portal into this hellscape dimension. Okay. And that there is a suggestion that that's what Carcosa was intended. That you blend this extreme pleasure and extreme misery and pain to literally rip a hole in in the psychosphere and gaze the infernal plane uh-huh. and ascend there and that if you buy this interpretation that it's entirely possible that rust in this in this last moment was able to witness that because he is a man of extreme suffering in this nexus of all these this 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 misery uh and that he actually was inadvertently able to glimpse that same thing that uh crazy old era was talking about okay i mean it's interesting i think the show has told us that he's having visions though um no these these visions are just that and and i like the fact that there is a rational explanation for everything yeah that this is a very scooby-doo type situation but you know I, i can also see you know where you'd have a through line there where like this is a guy who like you said has suffered a lot um, he feels that pain. He understands it. So maybe there's some kind of, if if you want to go down that psychic road, maybe there's some kind of connection. Yeah, and it's like I also don't like the fact that you, you I, I I do like the fact you can dismiss it as a delusion, but then you also sure. kind of have to apply that same logic to what he said about his daughter and his father. And which, I do. Yeah. I know. Yeah, as a purely as a, as a man of science, you do. But uh-huh. I also I I like leaving that possibility open that there is some you know bat wings and tentacles peeking out I, here I mean, and there. I would say certainly in fiction, that's the case, right? There's plenty of room for that. I don't yep. I don't think it's invalid to draw fictional universes, sure. paint fictional pictures with those kind of ideas. But I think the show itself has told us that this is a very realistic show and that you don't you don't need that extra layer on top of what's happening. We talked a little bit about Russ being a Christ figure, meditating on what it's like to crucify uh, oneself and it's arguable that he attempted to sacrifice himself to take down this guy or at least that was an attempt you know a, a very likely martyring was going to go on yeah also jesus spent three days dead and then was resurrected with uh you know offering the keys of the kingdom to his disciples true russ spent i don't know how many days i don't know if they mentioned i doubt it was as on the nose as three days but he spent no. a lot he spent a period in a coma Mm-hmm. And then came back to life espouting this positive view on the afterlife. I thought that it's a little bit more explicit his and he he looks a little ju- like Judeo Christian Jesus. Sure. Especially when he lets his hair down, right? With his hair down like, yeah. and, and and also the fact that he's got those black eyes and he's he almost looks a little bit uh passion of the Christy. Uh-huh. Yep. So I thought I thought by the end there was a lot of very obvious Christ figure things going on with Rust. Yeah, I feel like it's mostly a stretch and the stuff I've read from Pizzolatto where he says, look at the Old Testament yeah, is is interesting to me because, like, you know, Jesus is not in the Old Testament. Sure. So. Well, I don't know. Depends. <laughs> Depends on the, the story. Certainly a lot of talking about a Messiah and prophecies yeah, and that yeah, they were looking Jesus for him. Jesus himself is never mentioned. Certainly. Uh, so. Let's talk about the. I, I I already talked about this in the main cast. The whole time is a flat circle. That that mm-hmm. as optimistic as the end was, this is essentially the arc of episode five, four, one through four is the exact same as the arc from episode five through eight. It's literally a repeat what do you mean? that they got another. You know, they got another oh, bad man, but okay. it's not the bad men, and it's not an end, and gotcha. that this will happen again. It's I'm I'm certain that this will continue to happen. Okay. Because they didn't get all the family members, they didn't get the rich, powerful people that are behind it, and they're not gonna stop. Sure. So um, that is the pessimistic side of the optimistic ending of True Detective. Yeah, but I 
I don't know. I mean, yeah, you can say the time's a flat circle, but in the end, I there's growth, right? Like, there's growth from Rust, um, who views the universe as, you know, a little more optimistic. The two good guys don't die in this. Yep. Only the bad guys die. But so, they didn't die back in 95 with the Reggie Ledoux either. You're right. So what I'm saying is, like, look at that optimistically, saying the good guys never die. And Rust and Only Marty the bad both guys die. are arguably happier and more content in their lives now, too. So the light is winning. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a pretty logical conclusion to draw. Sure. And, you know, you're never going to... If 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 light is winning and it, it, the evidence is as a night sky, there's still a lot of work left to do. So you're not going to get everybody. You're not going to beat all the yeah. darkness in one go. Bald Move depends on your support to create our independent podcast. Find out how you can help out and get lots of great perks such as ad-free podcasts, live video feeds, and other exclusive bonus content at club.baldmove.com. If you'd like to send in your feedback, you can do so by emailing it to truedetective at baldmove.com. You can find all of our content at baldmove.com and participate in our discussion forums. Keep up with our latest release schedules by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter.